The April 20th Mindful Parenting Retreat Day is filling up fast. Join me and other parents in Wilmington, Delaware for a day of rest and relaxation, mindfulness and mindful communication practices, and a live podcast too. And my special guest for the live podcast is, drumroll please, Lynetta Willis. You know her from episode 366 and 400. She is a psychologist and sought-after speaker who teaches her Triggered to Transformed program to struggling parents. Join us and bring a friend to this powerful day-long retreat in Wilmington, Delaware on April 20th, 2024. But hurry, space is limited. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat to get your spot now. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat. It's so important for us to be exploring what's going on inside of our own hearts and our own minds in relation to our children and less about how we look and how other people look. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 337. Today, we're talking about the secret to secure attachment with Bethany Saltman. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confidence. Kids. Hello, welcome. I'm so glad you are here today. This is such a cool conversation. But listen, if you haven't done so yet, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And you know, if you get some value from this podcast, or if you have ever gotten any, do me a favor, go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. It really just helps the podcast grow more. It takes a minute of your time. And I really, really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with Bethany Saltman. She's an author and editor and researcher. Her work can be seen in magazines like The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Atlantic Monthly Parents, and others. And we're going to talk about her book, Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. And you'll hear me say how much I loved this book. I devoured her book in like four days. I had I really, really enjoyed reading it. So much in there, and she re- we really dive into in this conversation the science of you know attachment, such a buzzword, especially for us parents. And we're going to talk about the science of attachment. What does it mean to have a secure attachment? What are the key ways to develop a healthy attachment? And also about her own story. So this is such a fascinating conversation that I know you are going to love, and and may actually you know, spark some different ideas for for many of us. Before we dive in, I just want to share some recent wins from Mindful Parenting members. As you may know, Mindful Parenting is the course and the membership site where I help parents take it to the next level and create that calm and cooperation they really want, invest in those relationships that really make the most meaning and joy in our lives. And here are some wins. So I'm so psyched for Jana, who just joined Mindful Parenting and she is finding time for herself again. So thrilled. Juliana is celebrating her daughter wanting to avoid being late, which is uh, so exciting. Valerie has started meditating and is working on incorporating it daily. Allie is having an easier time leaving the house with the kids. Hoot. She's been also meditating daily, focusing on calming herself before helping her child. So great. All right. Let's do this. Let's dive in. Join me at the table as I talk to Bethany Saltman. So I was so fascinated by Strange Situation and I love your book. And I wondered if like part of it, I mean, obviously you were fascinated by and curious about your own attachment style and your child's attachment style. Um, in much the way I was after I, I first took my first psychology class in college and I was like, oh my God, am I insecurely attached? Right. Like, and, and you had that big question too. So I, I, I would just love to just to open up this conversation by, uh, just maybe you could tell for us, the listener, it, in case anyone doesn't know or has a 
confused idea. What is attachment and, and why were you so passionate and curious about it to write this book about it? Sure, sure. Yeah, well, attachment is not what I thought it was. Um, so I'll start with what I thought it was. I, um, when my daughter Azalea was born, she's almost 16. Um, I had read Dr. Sears and his book on attachment parenting. And I was under the impression that attachment was something, it was kind of like a do or die. It was a yes or no. And that a kid was, a baby was attached or was not attached. And that an adult likewise, um, you know, had a kind of good attachment system or a bad attachment system. And, um, and he set it up to be, and, you know, and he says lots of things to sort of counteract this impression, but he does in fact state that, um, you know, this is a kind of intuitive system that if it's not, if, well, what he says is that if it's working well, it will be very good for the mother and for the baby. And so my question was, well, what if it's not working well? Mm -hmm. So my, my initial impression of attachment was this very nebulous kind of thing. And so, but what I learned in my research and after studying attachment for many years is that attachment is a very broad behavioral system that includes our entire bodies and minds. And it's really an orientation toward connection. It's an orientation toward using another person as a, as a form of safety. So um, a really wonderful way of describing it is when a, when a rabbit gets afraid, they run to a den, to their like place, and a person runs to a person. Mm. And so that's attachment. Mm. It's that very, very profound, very primitive, and it, and it takes everything that we have to learn to trust that someone will be there for us. Now, when we hear that, we hear that with adult ears, and so we think of all the ways that we trust or don't trust as adults. But when we're babies, it's really not like that. It's much more simple and it's much more forgiving <laughs> than we as adults may believe it to be. So a baby really just needs to feel sometimes like their primary caregiver is um, delighted by them, is aware of them, um, sees them as the apple of their eye. And is there for them in times of stress, most of the time, some of the time. It's not this super articulated understanding of trust and safety that we have as adults, which I think is where we get into a lot of trouble as parents, as humans, as women, with this perfectionistic kind of hope that we're going to be able to perform this um, so-called secure attachment, when really what that more often is, is a kind of very externalized, performative understanding of what we think attachment is supposed to look like. And it has nothing to do with the internal experience that a baby and a, and a caregiver um, go through together. That's such a beautiful definition of it that I really, really appreci appreciate. And it's really different from it. I mean, I just not to throw attachment parenting under the bus because it has so many, like there's a lot of wonderful things, but I have some big issues with attachment parenting in that there's a lot of pressure that it puts on uh, moms and also puts a lot of pressure on people to, um, you know, and it, and you want to, I mean, I slept with my baby in the beginning and where, you, you know, I wore my sure, baby. I what, did all those wonderful works. things. I yeah. loved it. But I feel like sometimes people feel like, that achievement idea of like, I have to do this thing, or I have to, even if I'm not getting enough sleep, or even if I'm, I, I don't always, you know, if, even if it's not something, there's a lot of pressure to perform these, um, these, these actions that attachment parenting prescribes, but that's not, those things are not the things that create attachment you've discovered. That is exactly right. And that is why, you know, Dr. Sears notwithstanding, or I mean, like setting Dr. Sears aside, um, attachment is, has nothing to do with what we do and everything to do with how we feel. Mm. So you can have a, you know, spectacularly perfect looking attachment parent who's got doing all the things and they're filled with rage. 
you know, some healthy skepticism in my life has served me well. And if you're like that, if you can spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from about a mile away, you read labels like it's your job, congratulations, you're a skeptic. And Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. I take Ritual's Essentials for Women 18 Plus every single day, morning and at lunch, and I am feeling great. I love this vitamin. Ritual's Essentials for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. Plus, Ritual Vitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen-free, certified B Corp, and made traceable. They select lower carbon packaging, they prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients, and set ambitious climate goals. Plus, Ritual is a female-founded B Corp, which means they are responsible to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash mindful. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash mindful for 25% off. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And resentment. So we can have, we can look like we are, um, you know, perfect attachment parents because we're wearing our baby, we're sleeping with our baby, we're nursing on demand, all the things, but inside we're filled with rage and resentment because we're exhausted, we don't like it, it's not working for us. And that wasn't me, by the way. I mm-hmm. loved nursing, I, I enjoyed sleeping with my baby. I wore her till she was like seven. Um, I, I loved a lot of those things, but it wasn't because I, those weren't the things that helped me have a secure attachment with her. Those were the things that I enjoyed because they made my life easier. They kept me connected to her. I am allergic to gear of all kinds. I couldn't do strollers. I just, you know, I, I need things to be very, very simple. So for me to cook, it was just easier for me to have her on me, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, so, I agree. <laughs> but you know, you can, and then likewise, we can have a parent who might look again to the enterprise, the parenting enterprise as not a very attuned parent who gives their child you know, doesn't nurse. Maybe they give them juice when they're babies. Maybe they are giving them processed food. Maybe they're going to McDonald's. Maybe they're watching too much TV. Maybe they're on their screens. Maybe they, the parent yells. Maybe the parent has three jobs and can't um, take the time to do, you know, put the baby in the high chair and speak to them just so, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that has absolutely nothing to do with a secure attachment because a secure attachment comes from that parent, regardless of their gear and their economic status and the way they look, it comes from their ability to feel their own feelings so that when the baby yells or when the baby screams or when the baby's unhappy, the parent can tolerate the baby's feelings and respond reasonably decently. That's all it means. Yeah. And not every a hundred percent of the time, like, like, heck no. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I thank you because I feel like that's such a, um, that's a misconception that we have, you know, and, and that parent, especially moms are really hard on themselves. If we're not like checking that box, getting that a in our own minds. And that's the, what you're describing, that's really the danger is the feeling is the, is the internal orientation of I'm, 
not good enough. I'm not doing this well enough. I can't be with myself. I can't be with these difficult feelings. That's actually yeah. the thing. That's the thing that we want to heal and, and take care of. And, and, you know, absolutely that, that could lead to that lack of attachment, I guess. Well, it's, not a, it's never going to be the lack of attachment. There's uh-huh. every single one of us is attached. It may not be a premium experience. (laughs) It may not be the best, um, you know, adaptation, but we are all attached um, unless and except for cases of extreme neglect, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is very rare, really. Um, We may associate our attachment figures with a kind of trust that isn't very good for us. And we end up doing all kinds of things later in life based on these early imprints, but we are attached. We are attached. And it's really, really important to remember that. Okay. So healthy, healthy attachment anyway. Um, Yeah. Or secure. Secure secure. is is the technical term. You know, secure simply means, you know, where your bread is buttered. You know, you're, you're, you're a child, you, you fall down, you naturally go to your caregiver and they naturally give you enough to, so that you can go back to the playground. That's all it is. I'd love to take this conversation and kind of like rewind it a little bit and kind of put it in the place okay. of history because I think it's so interesting to understand that before there was the study of attachment or what, and you write a lot about in your book about Mary Ainsworth, who was one of the major people who studied, pioneers who studied attachment along with Bowlby. But, um, in that time, like the 1940s and 50s, the prevailing scientific view was this behaviorist view where we thought that, you know, people just responded to stimulus, right? Like, and so therefore like behaviors, you know, we could reward or punish and that sort of comes the view, you know, that's the view that, that results in the idea of like, we just reward or punish different behaviors. And then we get the behaviors that we want, which is still pretty much a view that is, has super long legs and is, is very, very influential today. But um, I was wondering if you could kind of write about that view of what was then, or talk to me about what was then, and then how this attachment idea was really different at the time. Sure. Um, You know, so John Bowlby was a psychiatrist in England, and he was looking, (coughs) excuse me, children after World War II who had been, um, who's, who lost their parents and were in, in orphanages, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and the prevailing view of the time, but again, it's always sort of like the, the experts who go against what every parent knows, you know? Mm. So the experts were saying, well, children really just need, um, you know, they, they'll be secure. They'll be, they'll forget about their parents. All they need is someone who's going to give them food and shelter and the child, the child will be just fine. And John Bowlby was seeing that in fact, he was dealing with these children who were grieving their parents and there was no way to understand that. And so that's what got him on this path of trying to see what was going on with children who had lost their parents. And that it was a particular person that they missed. It was a particular person that they loved. It doesn't mean that that can't ever be healed and they can't love again. But this idea of the parent as the unique individual, like a lover, you know, a lover, you know, someone that we love um, is very particular, very unique to the attachment science. Now, most parents, of course, regardless of what they might say or um, you know, it's not like people just started becoming securely attached in the 1950s and 60s yeah. when Bowlby and Ainsworth <laughs> started talking about it. This is human nature. This is what we do. And we do this all around the world. We do it. We've always done it. We will always do it. And, and it's really important to, for your listeners to think about, um, you know, all the different kinds of parents there are in the world and that 65% of us are securely attached, even in instances that seem unbelievable and so different from the way that we think we're supposed to be. So I always like to remind perfectionistic mothers about that to like (laughs) let down the guard a little bit. Um, 
so, so yeah, so that, that's what sort of was happening in the science. And so when Bowlby and Ainsworth came along, well, when Bowlby originally came along and said, the relationship between a parent and a child is in fact a relationship, people really balked at that and said, are you kidding? Like parents are just drones, <laughs> you know, like just feeding children and, you know, providing care and, um, you know, Skinner put his baby in a box and, and all that kind of stuff. And oh my God, that was um, so shocking. Do you know what happened to this poor child who was raised in the Skinner baby she, box? She swears that it was fine. She writes about it and she says that, and you know, it could be because she was somehow securely attached. Who knows? I think that the real, um, you know, I think for me, the the most important message here is that we, it's so important for us to be exploring what's going on inside of our own hearts and our own minds in relation to our children and less about how we look and how other people look. Mm. All right. Awesome. Yes. Yes. Even, even but, Skinner who looks insane. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? His daughter stands by him. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe she was securely attached. It, it's so fascinating, but I mean, so that was, that was an idea. Like the science was basically saying like, um, let's, you know, we can reward and punish behaviors on these external things. And it's not this internal stuff that matters, but then Ainsworth and Bowlby, they were saying like, no, you know, this, this relationship is really matters a lot. And, and Ainsworth developed the strange situation. Maybe you could just describe what that is because it's the title of your book. And it's really an interesting little test that uh, sure, sure, sure. had a life of its own. Yeah. So, so the strange situation is a procedure that, so, so when Ainsworth, when Bowlby came up with this idea, that relationships matter among parents and children. And I certainly did not, when I said before, it means to imply there's any kind of like romance between parents and children. When I said love-er, it's just that there's love, the way that we feel yeah. love for anybody. I mean, that's the human heart. And yeah. so, um, you know, I, I understand that can be a very <laughs> sensitive area. So I wanted to clarify that. But um, so he mm-hmm. came up with this idea that, that parents and children have a real relationship people balked, including Mary Ainsworth, who was working with him on his projects at the time. She didn't believe it because she was from the Freudian view that um, babies, that children and parents exist in sort of like, they kind of coexist psychically, but that what was most important was what was happening intra-psychically, like in one's own mind and fantasy and dream. It's very individualistic that, view, basically. Exactly. Right? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. Psych- psychically. So, yes. Um, so then she went to Uganda and started studying this and seeing it on her own. And she saw immediately that Bobby was right, that in fact, the mothers and babies that she saw, and she was there, by the way, because her husband was had a job there and was doing a research project. Um, so she didn't go there to study, but she figured, well, I'm going, I don't really have a choice. So I may as well study this thing that I've become curious about. And she saw right away that what she studied, what she saw were in fact, real relationships that, um, you know, had many of the same rules of engagement that adult relationships have. People want to be heard. They want to be seen. They want to be listened to. Um, all of us do babies, teenagers, <laughs> Um, who I have in the house with me now, um, adults, old people, you know, mammals, mammals like contact. We like mirroring. My dogs like it. Um, so, so she began to see that this was true. And then she became obsessed and very steeped in it and really wanted to understand, okay, so this attachment relationship is true. How does it work? When does it happen? How does it change over a lifespan? What is different among different people? And so that's when she became interested in classifying different kinds of attachment. And that's where secure and insecure attachment came from, was from from her studies. So she was in Uganda. Then she went to Baltimore because her husband went back to Baltimore. Um, That's a whole nother story. And she um, started, she wanted to replicate what she did in Uganda in Baltimore. She wanted the most different population she could possibly find on the planet. And so she went from, um, you know, very, um, you know, traditional um, African women to uh, suburban moms in Baltimore in the 1960s, which I think as, is as pretty, pretty good. 
pretty <laughs> different. Yeah. And what she discovered was exactly the same, except for one thing, which was that um, the babies in Baltimore didn't express as much concern. They didn't express as much um, protest when they were in the in the presence of a stranger as the children in Uganda did. So at the heart of the attachment system is what is called secure base behavior. And we all know what that is. So when the child is afraid, they, like I said before, they go to the parent. Um, if, a, if a parent, if a child is really, you know, happily playing and then a loud noise comes, they, you know, scooch to the parent. And that secure base behavior is really important. That's like the building block of what creates a secure attachment. Like, is that secure base behavior functioning most of the time and with ease? So Mary was very interested in watching that. In Baltimore, she didn't see as much of it because people, the babies weren't as frightened of her as they were in Uganda. So she was really curious about that. Part of it was that the babies in Uganda had never seen a white person and she was a white person. So that, you know, that enlisted a kind of threat feeling so she could see that she could watch their secure based behavior with her in the room. In, you, in Baltimore, that wasn't happening. And so she devised, along with one of her students, this thing called the strange situation, where she would take the babies into the lab in at Johns Hopkins and put them through a very, you know, not too stressful, but semi-stressful experience where they were left, um, where they met a stranger, they were left alone with the stranger, and the mother returned. And over time, they saw that what was most interesting was not what happened when the baby was left alone or met the stranger, but what happened when the mother returned. In other words, does could the baby bring themselves back to regulation with the, with the help of the mother? Was the secure-based relationship functioning well? Mm-hmm. And so this became the gold standard for attachment security um, observations around the world and still is today. It's been done tens of thousands of times in every population you can imagine around the world and continues to show very robust findings that, you know, within this 20 minute procedure, we can see by the time a baby is one, how strong their um, secure based behavior is, which usually leads to a kind of security and attachment by the age of one which has been shown to have long range effects, which does not mean that um, you know, this is the end of the road by the time you're one. It shows a kind of tendency, but it certainly is not um, written in stone. There are all kinds of things that happen, positive and negative to change a child's attachment pattern by the, after, after they're one. It's so fascinating. And then attachment is something that gets passed on, right? Like it's something yes, that exactly. we, our attachment style is like a 70% predictor of our parent, our, yep. our child's attachment style. And then, it, and then it has all these repercussions. I mean, this is the whole thing that made me so anxious in a lot of ways, like when my daughter was little, because me too, you hear all this like information about how like important the first three years are. And then, and then in the first three years, like you don't know anything, you're anxious, you're learning. And it's, it's, um, it's a really, it, it's like a setup. It's a situation that's set up for a lot of, a lot of pressure on new parents yes, and a lot of pressure. And, and I'm not sure that, you know, there's like a, a whole bunch of understanding out there that like kids regulate their emotions through us in the way that you describe in the, in the strange situation, right? Like it's more and more, we're understanding that, but that for them to be able to regulate their feelings, they have to come to us and feel like a sense of security, right? A sense of, uh, enough of a sense of ease, enough of a sense of of, of, you know, for lack of a better word, relaxation of concern, care, all of those things, enough of that so that they can, you know, regulate their own difficult feelings through that. But then if we are having, that's why it goes back to what you said, like it, it matters about how we're able to process and feel our own feelings so that then we can help them regulate. Um, there's so much there. My gosh. I know. I know. And I will say for the people who are listening and thinking, oh my gosh, but I am anxious all the time and I'm, you know, mean and I'm edgy. And so I can't do it. The way 
to do it is by feeling your anxiety and your edginess and your pain. That's the only way. <laughs> the only way out is through. You know, yep. And that is the truth, Ruth. I mean, there's just no, you know, people get so mad about attachment because mothers don't have enough support because we don't know how to take care of ourselves because the patriarchy puts so much pressure on us and, you know, things like COVID make it so much worse. And, you know, all of the ills of, of society, of our culture, of the way that we're structured come in through a woman's body and that's patriarchy, but that is not attachment. That is not, that doesn't discount the truth of attachment. It makes it true that we need more support and that it's not just about women, it's about any primary caregiver. Um, but, you know, we want to, we can't, we can't make it not true that mm. our babies need us to be present in our own experience. Mm. There, I mean, you could never convince me that that is not true. And I have studied this for a long time long time. And I have spent many, many years in meditation as a Zen practitioner and the Buddha came up with the exact same reality. So that's why I love this work so much because it, it, it just dovetails so beautifully with a, um, an understanding of the universe that I have come to appreciate and trust. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was so excited about it because I'm yeah. reading your book and you're, you take us on this story. You take us on this amazing story of yourself. You're open and vulnerable. And I'd love to like talk about those things, but I... I, I, you know, you, you know, you discover that the, these external things are not the thing. And it's all the things that we need are the things that I was so excited because this is what I teach in mindful parenting is like, we need to be able to regulate our own nervous system. We need to be able to steady our hearts and our minds and our nervous system. We need to be able to take care of our difficult feelings. We need to have compassion for ourselves. We do all these things to steady and, and, and heal ourselves. And that those are the things that help us give our kid a secure attachment. Yes, yes ma'am. Self-care is other care is child care. Yep. And not, I'm not talking about many petties and bubble baths, although that's great. I'm talking about taking yourself seriously 
And, you know, like I say all the time, if you're serious about wanting to create a secure attachment with your child, start by paying attention to yourself in a deep way. You know, I get very, um, I don't know if frustrated is the right word, but a little bit, yeah, I guess frustrated with so much of the so-called parenting shtick around, um, you know, just all this worry about, you know, are we doing a good job? And what, is, what does secure attachment mean? And all this mishigas around it. And it's like, guys, don't worry about it. That, that's, it's not about like what we can think and understand and know. I mean, of course I can say that because I just went through this whole thinky process, but I'm here to tell you, don't worry about it. Like learn about yourself, learn to delight in, in yourself, Bring some delight to the picture with your child. It doesn't have to be all the time. It doesn't have to be perfect. And it doesn't have to look any certain way. But that will bring the joy and the light to your child's future that you might think that you're doing by learning all this stuff and trying to do all these things. It's so simple that our like super developed minds as you know, contemporary Western mothers um, it's almost too simple for us because we, we crave, I think, we crave a lot more stimulation. <laughs> we want to be intellectually stimulated. We want to be creative. And that's all great. And I think we should do that. But this piece is not that. This is a very, very simple body thing. And it's scary when the answer is not external. And what's scary when the answer exactly. is external, right? Like Exactly. There's a lot of resistance to becoming comfortable in one's own a skin lot. because that's a scary thing Ugh. to do. I mean, hey, you probably heard. I, there was I'm that. not into it. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I wish that there was an external reason or an external answer to this difficulty, but there isn't. There just isn't. Um, I really appreciate the way. I really appreciate the way you write so like vulnerably, so honestly and really beautifully about your experience, about like, you know, your your feelings of joy, your feelings of ambivalence, all these different things, the worries like you were so concerned about attachment that you became like a, a someone who can measure <laughs> adult attachment. It's so fascinating, you and your husband. But you also write really frankly about um about sleep training. And, mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if I'm, I'm just going to, if you don't mind, I want to just read a little part. Sure. Um, you said, uh, sort of the end of that chapter, a few nights of tears, I trusted paled in comparison with what I knew Azalea was up against and what she'd be up against even more. If she and I were both exhausted, my impatience, my anger, me, and you write about sleep training, which I think is incredibly brave of you knowing that it's such a fraught and challenging issue. Um, did you have any, uh, did you have any worries about sharing this? Where, tell me about your decision to kind of like share your experience with sleep training and, 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 and about yeah. the experience itself. Yeah, um, I had no qualms about it because it worked for us so well. And we did it in a, and I read about it in the book, extremely meticulously. I um, am not a fan of recklessness. Mm. You know, I am a very meticulous person. I, um, I, I take this stuff very seriously. So when I talk about, you know, it's inside, it's not outside. Um, don't worry about getting too complicated about it. It's not because I don't care or I don't think it matters. I think it matters tremendously. And so when, when we moved into the sleep training moment, it was with that level of um, intention. And so we did a lot of reading. We and I found something that seemed true for me. There was a book called The Circle of the Mother Circle. I love that book. It's my favorite parenting book. Mm. Um, and um, and they talked about just a very gentle approach that, but they gave really specific, um, you know, instructions, directions. And so we followed the instructions to a T. And it worked really, really well. It was very painful. 
um, by, you know, I think it was three nights and I have the whole record. I have the whole journal of like, you know, every 15 minutes and what we did. So we, but I, and, you know, not to toot our own horn, but I think I'm really proud of the way that my husband and I did that because we, we took it really seriously and we, um, you know, we sacrificed big air quotes, three nights of, you know, no sleep of really difficult work. And because I knew that I am, you know, I had been, I just lived in a monastery where I was sleep deprived and ill and I could not be tired. Um, so I had to make sure I got some sleep. And so that's why we went ahead and did this, but we did it, I think really the right way. And it quote paid off. Now, someone mm-hmm. could be listening to this and saying, oh, you know, three nights for you is a, ch- a life of, you know, difficulty for the child, but that's just not true. First of all, she's like the most, you know, um, well-adjusted person I've kind of ever met. Um, and she's also a delight and, um, you know, she, she's totally, totally fine and sleep training. I mean, there's much more, she had much bigger fish to fry than sleep training. She had a difficult mother who has a temper, who has my own trauma. I have, you know, difficult, in my system. I have a difficult, I've got a lot going on. And so sleep training was the least of it. It was really my way of saying, um, you know, this is going to help. And it, it really, really, really did. I cannot imagine being able to raise her exhausted. Um, and um, yeah, so I didn't have any qualms about it. And I haven't had people, I had one crazy thing where I was working with someone on Instagram, who's like a, a a sleep, an infant sleep person. And I wrote a, I did a post. Oh, I did an Instagram post showing with a, a, a video of Azalea doing a TikTok dance. And I, and then I had people swipe and say, if you're worried about sleep training, like this is the result. I mean, she was just like adorable and exuberant and fantastic. And I was trying to say, don't worry, you know, it's going to be okay. Like here's this, you know, wonderful human being. And the person that I was working with, and we were going to do all these partnerships together, she totally had to like cancel me because her, her following was like, how can you possibly talk to her? Cause she's pro sleep training. And it's just like, oh goodness. So it's this, but that's the only time that's ever happened to me. The, the issue around sleep training is not really about sleep training. It's about, um, kind of a black and white understanding of the Mm -hmm. world. And so Mm -hmm. while I am certainly not a fan of letting children cry more than they need to Mm -hmm. by any measure, um, I think doing a very intentional um, procedure that you think was going to help because you have really good reasons for doing it, I think that we have to do the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. We have to kind of weigh all those things. I mean, that's something I worry about a lot when I see, um, you know, I, I'm all for people making their, their own choices that feel really good to them. But when I see a lot of pressure out there to, um, you know, to, to either not sleep train or the shaming of it and those kind of things, I really worry about people's mothers and fathers and caregivers ability to get enough sleep and to be able to function. Like there's 40, 40% of the population is like, doesn't, is not getting enough sleep. We're in this kind of like, go, go, go do it all perfect kind of world. And to not get enough sleep. I know, I know personally, like I can really relate to what you're saying. Cause I dealt with my temper. I dealt with anger. I dealt with yeah. frustration and I was not going to be able to choose how I want to respond. I was not going to be able to respond well to my kid if I'm not getting enough sleep. Like it's incredibly crucial and it's incredibly crucial for kids to get enough sleep too. Um, it's like a crisis actually of sleep that we're kind of in. So totally is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate, I thank you for sharing that. Cause I think that that is, um, you know, there, there has to be like a nuanced point of view, you know, to, to, to be putting it in black or white or shaming, blaming on either side is to, to like take all curiosity and understanding out of the picture, right. To just say, you know, like, well, what is going on? What are your needs? And to say like, parents needs matter, you know, that I think for me, that, that a woman's needs matter. 
Yes. Yeah. A woman's needs matter. Yes. Yeah. And because we're, we're living in a world where dad's needs matter a lot more just operationally. Um, and so I think to say that a woman's needs matter is really, uh, powerful and radical. A woman's think, sleep matters. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Kristen Neff would call that fierce self-compassion, right? Like that's the exactly. I really like her compassion. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 All right. So the, if we want our kids to have a secure attachment, we want to be able to be that secure pay, base. We want to be able to respond um, sensitively. If we're worried that like we had all kinds of stuff going on when our kids were little, what, mm. what do you say to people if they feel like they're worried, I messed it up then. What do you say yeah. to people as far as like, what are the, you know, okay, yes, you know, Bethany, I'm, go I'm gonna, I'm gonna start to look at myself maybe, but what, what, what are some of the steps that people can take to, to turn a ship around if they feel like if it's gone sailing in the wrong direction? Yeah, well, first of all, that's such a big step. And I really applaud anybody who's willing to say that really say it. I have screwed up. You know, that's not easy to say. Yeah. And, um, and to not do it in a kind of, you know, um, really wild way, but to really be very, um, again, meticulous and intentional about, I made a mistake when I blank. And, and to let that in, I think is the first step. Because what we're doing is we're trying to, and I'm not an expert in this, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a therapist, I'm just you know, a person who's been thinking and working on these channels for a long time. It's about um, creating less distance between the feeling of shame and the, the feeling of kind of regulation. So, so it's creating, um, so, when, so when I say I made a mistake, I regret having done X or Y, Mm -hmm. then um, it kind of, it just, it, it integrates. I'm, I'm becoming more integrated with those parts of myself because the more shame I have about having quote screwed up, the more shame I'm going to fall into when, when I do it again, because I will, I will do that thing again. So to me, the first step is to always admit when I've really done something that I'm not happy with. And, and I have to keep admitting it, you know? I mean, Azalea's almost 16 now and um, things come up and I'm like, God, that was really, I was having such a hard time then. And I wish I could have done that differently. And man, do I mean that. And that is not just some kind of like shallow bit of words. I really wish I could have done things differently and I couldn't, I didn't. And here I am facing, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here for the feelings that I'm having toward myself. I'm here for the frustration that I have toward her, you know, in whatever situation, um, just be here for it, you know, to just be here for it. And for me, a meditation practice is crucial. I can't do it without, um, not everybody digs that that's totally great, but, you know, having some kind of a secure base in your own life, um, whether it's a body practice is huge. You know, I just read something the other day. Um, there's some practice about like walking and that, and someone said, nobody's ever felt worse after a walk. I just loved that. Like walking is just taking a walk. I take walks by myself. I don't listen to podcasts. I don't talk on the phone to friends. It's just like, okay, here I am in my body, in the world, like, you know, moving around really, really helps. It helps me be here. So I would say, you know, as far as the science goes, it's never, ever, ever too late. Um, you can always turn the ship around relationally. You know, and people who are in long marriages know this to be true. You can always, you can always change things. We're always changing. Attachment security, attachment patterns are changing all the time. Well, I shouldn't say all the time. Attachment patterns can change over time in our lives when large enough events happen. So if you are someone who is living in a lot of shame about early relationships with your children, if you can dig in and do some work around changing your own experience, your own way of relating, it will change your relationship with your children now. 
no matter how old or young they are. And that is, again, a truth. So, you know, we are such forgiving, um, incredibly, you know, just like glorious creatures. And, and our system is so built for forgiveness and so built for functioning and for love. And so all we have to do is not all, it's a lot, but, you know, or I, I really like to think in terms of orienting, orienting toward our own um, spaciousness, our own forgiveness, our own love. And then that, you know, we bring the people in our sphere into that delight. Delight is what Mary Ainsworth called it. That quality that she saw between insecurely attached pairs is what she called mutual delight. Mm -hmm. And if we have a hard time, you know, starting to notice delight is a really good step. Like what delights you? Is it, you know, a sunny day? Is it getting eight hours of sleep? Is it a meal? You know, to just start indexing on your own delight. And then how can you share that? And how can you share in mutual delight with your child? Azalea and I watched, we, we're finishing The Sopranos right now. It's so fun. It's, I mean, it's kind of crazy. There's a lot in there that I would not have thought that I was going to watch <laughs> with my 16 year old, but um, you know, we're, we're working it out and it's not everybody's version of delight, but it's ours. It used to be Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. We love that. So it's like, this is not wholesome. This is not what someone might think of as like a sort of box check, you know, delighting in your child with your teenager, but it works for us and it brings us closer and it's, um, and it's a relationship building experience. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. You see, you're really describing like changing that relationship with yourself first and then that relationship with your child like it's really about giving attention giving you know all that to to these as a relationship and relationships do grow and change exactly. and our, our relationship with ourselves starts that right because then then we when we can I I don't know when we love and accept ourselves then we love and accept our kids like it's easier it's all easier it's all easier from there yep it's really true. It's one of those things that seems like some kind of a um, shtick, but it's just absolutely true. Thank you. Um, I think that's really beautiful. My daughter and I are really into queer eye. <laughs> My fourteen-year-old. Oh, that's a good one. And I. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I love that. But when she was, and what you what you said about like forgiveness and that starting over that really resonates with me. There's a, a piece in mindful parenting, I write about it in raising good humans. That is that I took from my experience in the, in the Zen tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. We went on a retreat. I took her on a retreat when she was six. Um, just the two of us, it was the last time Thich Nhat Hanh was in the United States. And it was this big retreat, thousands of people there. And we we're in a tent. Anyway, we, they taught us <laughs> a practice that, is called beginning anew. And in this practice at that time, there's different ways of practicing it. But at that time I was in a room with all these other families, big uh, bowl of flowers in the middle and these little flower pots. And I, when it was my turn, I was, I pushed the flower pot toward my six-year-old. And first I watered her flowers. I told her what I appreciated about her. So there's that appreciation and then delight again, that leaning into that. And then I ap apologized for my temper and my yelling and I cried buckets and, and, but it really was, it's what you're describing. It's like a beginning anew. And that is, is, is always possible. Um, mm, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so your meditation practice is something you started before you were, you had your daughter, still a strong yes. practice for you. Um, mm -hmm. a listener to this podcast knows I talk about meditation practice a lot. What is, what does your practice look like for you today? Um, well, it's definitely really different when I was younger, it was really rigorous and I did a lot of you know week-long retreats and spent a lot of time at the monastery and these days it's really getting up in the morning and sitting for 20 minutes before I do anything else 
And um, it's a very simple kind of shikantaza practice. Um, I used to work on koans. I used to be really what's just shikantaza? A lot more kind of taza. Shikantaza. It's just, it's just sitting. Mm-hmm. So it's it's um, objectless awareness. So it's not even um, working with the mind and or not even working with the breath and letting go of thoughts, which is the sort of traditional Zen practice. Um, it's just seeing thoughts, just seeing everything, just really cultivating bright um, awareness without any movement. Um, so that's my that's my practice, and um, yeah, I mean it's changed a lot over the years, but um, sometimes it's ten minutes. You know, I also write in the mornings before the world wakes up, so I'm always kind of like because writing can be a, a type of meditation, certainly not a, a substitute for me. But um, I'm always kind of splitting my time. Like, okay, what time does Azalea have to get up? What time are we doing? What time is the world going to you know, start? Um, and then I get up as early as I possibly can and divide that time between writing and sitting. Bethany, I have a, uh, maybe a sensitive question to ask. Can we spoil Ooh. your book? I want to give the ending. Sure. Letter. Can we? Are we allowed to? Okay. That's totally up to you. Yes. All right. If you think Listener, that's fine, that's you got to read the book anyway. But it, it, it reads like a, a mystery, like what's going to happen. And you eventually found out you went through all years of study and all this learning about attachment, becoming a trained and adult attachment styles, et cetera. And you eventually found out that your attachment st- status and your daughter's, and it really changed the way you told your own story. And I was wondering if you you could share a little bit about this. Sure. Um, is that the question you wanted to ask? Because that doesn't sound that sensitive. <laughs> I just don't want to, <laughs> I'm like a little leery of, of giving away the, you know, you were worried oh, that I you see. were, I was, anyway, I felt it's, like it yeah, was like yeah, a little okay, bit of yeah. a t- page turner. What will the attachment got status it, be? Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, we definitely, I definitely worked on that. Um, yes. Yeah, so how did it change? It changed um, when I got my ad- adult attachment results. Um, I was really surprised and, and found a sense of tremendous relief and confidence, actually, that has definitely stayed with me. It's been really interesting. Um, because, but it's not because I learned a certain thing about myself. It's more that I had come to trust this, this field of study very, very deeply. And I put in, it was kind of like the sleep training thing. I put in a lot of work to get myself to a place of trust. I mean, that tells you something about me. <laughs> um, so by the time I got there, it was kind of one of those beautiful moments of, um, you know, we don't get catharsis very much in life but it kind of was a bit of a catharsis. And um, so, yeah, it really did change because it helped me feel like I love being surprised. I love when things are not what I think they are. In fact, that's my biggest prayer. Please, you know, surprise me Um, because I tend to be someone who thinks she knows everything and is a little too sure of herself. And so that when I got, when I discovered what I discovered, it was like this incredible, you know, confluence of certainty that I had like come to the right place and learned something that I never could have imagined. And what I thought was, and and it it has definitely changed, saved, it changed me and that has stayed with me for sure. What I thought was beautiful is that how it changed the way you thought of your relationship with your mother. And I thought that was so interesting. Yeah. Because you had told yourself a story about you and your mother's relationship when you were uncertain and when you were worried, you had told yourself a story that was one story. And then it was like an an instant, your frame change. Just talk a little bit about that. That was so fascinating. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, I had always, you know, it's again, it's that just being a little too sure of myself, you know, like we all have that like negativity bias where we all see things out of a certain lens, but I am like extra that way. And um, it's, it's a pain in the butt because I get really um, convinced of things. And I think it's kind of like a trauma response. I'm not sure. But um, 
it's a strategy for sure. But so I had always, you know, in my disappointment toward my mother, which of course we all experience, I created a story because that's what we do. But it just so happens that when I create a story, it's pretty tight. <laughs> and so I had always thought of her as a, in a certain way and I was really sure of myself. And then I, so then I had, you know, come to understand the science of attachment. I came to really believe in it. I, you know, was a total zealot. And then when I discovered that the relationship between she and I is not what I thought it was, it forced this transformation of my perception that is any Zen students, you know, favorite thing, because what we study in Buddhism is our mind and our perception and our interpretation and how we are so um, at the mercy of our perception and that it's um, delusion is what it is, it's delusion. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very fine line between when to trust yourself and when to recognize that you're operating in delusion. And, you know, this is the, this is the duality that a practitioner is, is exploring all the time. And so when that happened for me, it was really kind of just a radical explosion of both of those things. I trusted something and something was totally wrong. And it was around my mother and um, my relationship with her has really, um, has grown since then as well. For sure. That's really she, she is not, she is not what I thought she was, nor is she otherwise. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful to hear. Yeah. Cause throughout the book, we hear the stories like, you know, mom's, you know, smoking the cigarettes while she's nursing you as a baby oh, and, yeah. and all oh, the yeah. different stories. And we're all like, Hmm, you know, we're kind of getting <laughs> it through your filter. And yeah, then exactly. it's so beautiful to see this, like, Oh, and this, this change of of filter and towards mom. And I'm, I'm really heartened to hear that your relationship really um, improved and changed from that realization. Yeah. Really I mean, we always had a great relationship, but I was just, I held her as I held everybody, mostly myself to this really kind of iron fisted expectation. And after going through all of that, I think I was able to soften around her for sure. Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. Bethany, I could probably hang out and talk to you about this for a long time. So, but yeah, me too. Me too. To it's so go. fun. <laughs> um, yeah. It, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much oh for, for the work you did sharing your voice in this book. The openness and vulnerability and honesty is incredibly refreshing. Great writing. I love it. And uh, oh, everyone should get you. Strange Situation by Bethany Saltman. And I want to thank you for the, your, just for doing that work, for being so open, for sharing your time with us here today. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I have too. Time. It's been really fun to talk. Thank you so much for inviting me. And um, yeah, I'd love to, you know, continue the conversation anytime. What a fascinating conversation. Did this change any of your ideas about attachment really deepened the conversation for me as I started to think of, as I sort of read this book and think about it. I think her message is also really reassuring too. But it's so fascinating. It really does come down to presence, being able to be with ourselves. So be able to be with our feelings so then we can be with our kids. And that is so, so, so important, so vital, right? The number one predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding is what Dr. Dan Siegel said. So so valuable. That's why in Mindful Parenting, the first four modules are about those inner tools to help you steady your heart, your mind, your nervous system, understand your triggers, get really practice, cultivate really deep self-compassion and learn how to take care of those difficult feelings that arise, you know, that we were never taught how to do. So lots and lots of tools in there and then all the skillful, effective communication tools. And thank you. Thank you so much for being here, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it makes some ripple effects of ease and peace in your week. And I, I really appreciate this way to connect. I really appreciate your time and your ears. And you know, I know that within you and within me, we have, you know, we are like our default settings are 
our for <laughs> for negativity bias and anxiety right because our our nervous system is wired for survival but we also have within us the capacity to have deep ease and connectedness and wholeness as we come into the present moment it makes such a huge difference in our lives so i hope wish for you moments of that this week and i thank you so much for listening I will be back in your ears next week, next Tuesday. So thanks so much. And we'll talk to you soon, my friend. Namaste. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.